Good morning, Lord. We are here today to meet with you and to listen to you and to learn from you. We are here to say yes. Yes, Lord, the whole earth is full of your glory. Yes, Lord, you are loving in all you do. Yes, Lord, you do all things well. Yes, Lord, you have taken away our sins and you call us your children. You are our Father. Yes, Lord, you are changing us to be like Jesus. Lord, today we say, yes, please heal the sick among us. Those we're thinking of now. Good folks like Sarah and Helen and David. Yes, Lord, prosper and protect all who preach the gospel today. We think especially of Hannah and thank you for his safe return to Gaza. Make a way for his wife and children to join him too. We say yes to, do, to you today, Lord, yes, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Yes, our hearts are open to listen, to worship, to love you. Show us today, Lord, good. Show us today, good Lord, the peace we should seek, the peace we must keep, the peace we must give, the peace we can forego, and the peace you give in Jesus Christ our Lord. And we pray this in your name. Amen. The first scripture is Joshua 6, 20 and 21. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed it with the sword, every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. And now from Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Would you bow your uh, head uh, with me for just a moment of prayer? Lord, we lift up our eyes to the hills. Where does our help come from in the trials of life? Where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength, our redeemer, our helper. Amen. John, don't sit down yet. I need your help. And maybe uh, Dave could come out and the two gentlemen on the end row here. Come on over. Their eyes got big and they said, uh-oh, what does he want with me? Uh, I'd like for you to each take an offering plate, gentlemen, and uh, pass these out. You're going to take that out. Just go up the center and pass them out. In here are some rocks. And I want you to take two or three rocks with me. With you, and they're kind of small, so get, get more than one. Get two or three rocks, and I want you to do exactly like I'm doing. Take your shoe off, 
and you drop them in that shoe. I'm serious. If you have sandals on, you take a rock and you put it between your the ball of your foot and the sandal. If it's uncomfortable, that's good. You got it? You understand what's going to happen now? You're going to take a rock, put it in your shoe, put it in your sandal. If you're barefoot, uh, I don't know what to tell you. Between your toes. Thank you. Yeah, if you're barefoot, just put it between your toes. I got this information kind of late, but oh, that rock is in the wrong spot there. We just finished studying the book of Ruth. And do you realize, and I didn't realize this, but I did some deeper study into the Word of God. And I want to share with you, even though we're done with the book of Ruth, you realize that before Boaz met Ruth, he was ruthless. And do you know what they call pastors in Germany? German shepherds. And uh, the greatest female financier in the Bible was Pharaoh's daughter. She went down to the bank of the Nile and drew out a little prophet. Uh, I'm going to be in trouble for this one. That's okay. The, uh, do you know what uh, Adam told the kids about why they had gotten kicked out of the Garden of Eden? Your mother ate us out of house and home. Uh, okay, one more. No, two more. Um, which servant of God was the most flagrant lawbreaker in all the Old Testament? Which servant of God was the most flagrant lawbreaker in all the Old Testament? Moses. He broke the Ten Commandments all at once. And uh, then last one. We're studying the book of Joshua. And I want you to find a Bible. If you brought a Bible, turn to Joshua. If you didn't bring a Bible, find one. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. The ushers will get you one. Um, but turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 6. Do you know that Joshua was the only man in the Bible who had no parents? He was the son of none. That's enough, she says. I'm moving on. Uh, I've got the signal to get serious here. Now, I want you to put that... You, has everybody got a rock in your shoe? Okay. Yeah, several, I hope. And I hope it's uncomfortable. You know, they say, if mama ain't happy, ain't what? Ain't nobody happy. And the same is true if the preacher ain't happy. Ain't nobody going to be happy on Sunday morning. Furthermore, if the preacher is tense or conflicted or struggling on Sunday morning, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be tense, struggling, and so forth this morning. So that's I just want to warn you up front where I'm at, all right? You've got a rock in your shoe. Now, we are studying the book of Joshua, and last week I handed out some reading guides for this fall. And we're going to look at Joshua. Next week we're going to look at Judges for a couple Sundays and then the books of Samuel. And in the information booth on the table, there's a green reading guide. If you don't have one, pick up one. Read with us through some of these historical books. We're in what we call Old Testament Challenge. And uh, last Sunday we kicked it off by looking at Joshua, and we talked about crossing over the River Jordan. And I challenged you that in life there are times when you have to risk. God calls you to take a step of faith, to enter into a new country, so to speak. And we talked about that. It was a, it was a great time together in the book of Joshua. Now, this morning I would rather just skip it. Because as you read through the book of Joshua, Judge Joyce wrote, read it a moment ago for you. In the book of Joshua, chapter 6, let me recapture a couple of verses she read. Now, in case you don't know the story... 
They have crossed over the river now. They're getting ready to conquer the land, the promised land, the land that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and others had been promised, but they'd never lived in. And so in one sense, it's a great day, but now they have to fight these battles. And the first one is the Battle of Jericho. And the walls have just come down. And let me pick up with uh, Joshua chapter 6, verse 20. We're on page 198 in this pew Bible. Bottom of the page, it says, So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, they raised a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people charged straight ahead into the city and captured it. Then they devoted to destruction by the edge of the sword all in the city, both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep and donkeys. And then there's sort of a wrap-up, verse 24. They burned down the city and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Wow. What about Joshua and war? I want to encourage you to find this in your bulletin because it's going to be especially useful today, this insert. What about Joshua and war? When you read that passage, I don't know about you, but it makes me cringe. It almost sounds like genocide. I say, what's going on here? I thought God loved people. And as you read through this, with our modern-day sensibilities, I can't speak for you, but for me, it's very troubling. How am I supposed to understand this? What's going on here? Does the Bible talk about holy war? Now, remember, this is a story of God's people entering into this land where they belong, where where God's going to give them. But in the Bible, you'll never find these two words together, holy war, or as we have heard so much in our culture or day, jihad. Those two words are never in the Bible together. The Bible does not talk nor teach holy war. In fact, the word holy is, it, we kind of said it, you know, it's a, it's a word we don't use every day. We, we think it uh, kind of reserved for church. The word holy is a very simple word. It means to set apart. And so in one sense, this room we're in is holy because we've set it apart for the worship of God. We don't come in here and play basketball or play cards or or smoke or, you know, that's not what this room is for. We come in here to worship. And so in that sense, it's set apart, it's holy. And that's simply what the word means. And in the Old Testament, you don't find these words together, holy war. And so let's let me share that with you first of all. Now... I have some questions that I want to read to you, and uh, as you listen, I'll give you the answer to this in a moment. But let me just read these questions. Does God even approve of such a thing as holy war? Is it okay to slaughter those who disagree with us? If you have an enemy, one who is truly evil, is it okay just to annihilate her or him? What are we to think about such stories in the Bible where they killed men, women, and children and burned the place to the ground? Do we, as Marcion did, just take our scissors and cut out these sections about war and the parts of the Old Testament that we don't like? Or are these stories examples for us to follow when we see evil and we do what they did? Now, the answer to each one of these questions is simply no. No. 
But how are we to think about this idea then of war or holy war or the destruction of people in the book of Joshua and throughout much of the Old Testament? And by the way, I'm not going to take the time to do this, but you can read Deuteronomy chapter 7, which is the setup for this whole book. And they're doing exactly what Moses had told them to do as they went into the land. So Deuteronomy 7 only reinforces this. So what's going on here? How are we to think about this? Now, at the beginning today, let me say, I don't think I can answer all your questions. I'm not pretending to do that. So you may walk out of here with just as many questions as you have now. Okay? Fair enough? I don't have all these answers. But I I want to give you some answers. And this morning, as you read through this, and this is where you may want to jot down these, remember these things. First of all, remember we live in a broken or sinful world. We live in a broken or sinful world. Two reasons that God destroys the Canaanites, at least two that are given Scripture. One reason is that the Canaanites were a people who were uh, unspeakably evil. And it does seem in Scripture that, according to God's judgment, people kind of reach a point where he says, these people just are so evil, I don't know what to do with them. And the Canaanites were a brutal, evil people. All kinds of sexual practices we wouldn't speak of in church. It's documented that they would take their firstborn son and slaughter that son in a sacrifice to Moloch. They would literally kill the infant. An abhorrent thing to the Lord who creates people in the image of God. And so one reason was that these people were destroyed is they were unspeakably evil. Secondly, God wanted to protect his people from contamination or pollution. Just as if you've been in hospitals much, sometimes you may go in and they require you to dress in a certain way, perhaps to protect the patient or perhaps perhaps to protect yourself from some kind of contamination. Or we quarantine people even to protect them or to protect us from infection or something else, a disease. Now, there's that sense as we go through Joshua that God says to his people over and over again, if you co-mingle, if you marry, if you start hanging out with these Canaanites, you're not going to make them holy. They're going to make you unholy. You're going to pick up their practices even to the point where you may be sacrificing your own children someday to this God Moloch. And if you read the book of Kings, you realize that what God feared often came true, that the people of God were... Uh, contaminated by the people around them as they picked up their customs. It could sound familiar, couldn't it? Now, I urge you, uh, we live in a modern world, and I don't know how you think about evil, but I want to kind of pause here this morning to, to urge you to recognize there is almost unspeakable evil in our world today as well. Two examples. I was reading U.S. News and Re- World Report magazine maybe a year ago or so, and it was of one of these conflicts in Africa where these warriors come in and they'll come to a little village made out of, uh, you know, grass huts and just a very poor little village where people live in stick houses and so forth. They come in there, burn the place to the ground, rape women, kill children. And the story was, and I, I've debated whether to even say this or not, but the story was of a soldier who would throw babies into the air and then shoot them in front of their family. Can you imagine that actually happening? But it does. It's happened in our lifetime. National Geographic had a picture of a man with an axe in Afghan. And the man was smiling and talking as he was interviewed that he had decapitated 1,300 people with that axe because they were infidels. And he planned to do more. Now, 
I try to never say of anyone they're evil. I don't, that's not a judgment I want to ever make. I leave that to God. But there are certain, certainly evil acts that happen in our day and in all days, and God hates evil. We need to remember God is pure and holy, and God hates evil. And God does not want us to be contaminated with evil. So, as you go through this, remember we live in a broken, sinful world. Also, there is spiritual warfare. Now, I want to be careful here. Uh, I believe this was a real battle with real people, and I believe they died. And so I'm not going to gloss over this. But if you are to study the book of Joshua, it's not like Joshua just wrote all this stuff down every day, and we have this history of Joshua that he put together. Actually, this is a, a somewhat spiritual or theological reflection written many, many years later to help the people of God understand how God wants them to live. And so a part of the teaching, and again, this is not the full statement, but some of this is here to teach us about spiritual warfare. There are evil forces. There are spiritual struggles we have in our lives. And as we read the book of Joshua, not to spiritualize it all, but to say it does remind us that you and I have spiritual battles as well, even if we're not going into Canaan. And so I want to remind you of that. Also, these stories do not support war making, and I hope you write that one down. Don't turn to Joshua 6 or any other of these Old Testament stories and say, well, see, they went to war, we can go to war. First of all, you need to understand Israel was a scrawny, weak little nation. They were not a mighty power. These victories happened, and it's explained why. God gave them the victory. They just sort of went through the motions, and God gave the victory. And so I want to remind you, this is not about war-making or justification for war-making. And then also, Israel was meant to be a magnet drawing nations to Yahweh. In, in Deuteronomy 7 and elsewhere, it's explained, God says, Why did I choose you, Jewish people, Israel? And there's a long list of things, but he says, You're not a great nation. You're not smarter than everybody. There, there's no particular reason I chose you. I just wanted a people to bring glory to my name. I wanted, and the way it was supposed to work is Israel would receive these battles and blessings from God and victories. And everybody would look around, and you pick up some of this in Joshua. They say, how can these people who aren't even warriors, how can they win these battles? Well, it's their God, Yahweh. Well, what about Yahweh? Well, you ought to come and learn about Yahweh. And so the idea was if Israel lived for God, people would say, well, why is this nation so blessed? And people would be attracted to Israel and to the God of Israel, Yahweh. That was God's goal for these folks. Now, let me give you one other reason, and we won't document this. It's simply true. God wants worshipers, not warriors. God wants worshipers and not warriors. And throughout this scripture and other scriptures, the idea is to worship God. And so this morning, uh, I want to remind you of those things. Anybody not get a rock? My foot's bothering me. Okay, let's stop. Let's stop. We're going to put up the stop sign. Take a deep breath. Okay? I'm going to shift gears. I'm going to go away from Joshua for a moment. And um, I want to ask you, how do you read the Bible? And I'm going to give some suggestions as, as to how you should read the Bible. And hang on to your Bible because I'm going to ask you to look up a couple Bible verses. The question is, are there what I'm calling controlling verses in the Bible. And let me illustrate what I mean by that. Um, if, you were, if you were given the choice by some powerful person, they said, look, I'm going to take something from your body. You're going to lose a body part. What do you want to lose? A tooth or a limb? 
What would you pick? A tooth, yeah. In fact, you might say, could I negotiate? I'd just like to lose some hair. Now, all of us know all of our body parts are important. I really want to keep all my teeth and thank my mom and dad. I'm keeping all my hair. Uh, good gene pool, I guess. But, you know, if we could choose what to lose, uh, we would choose something insignificant. It's all important, but we certainly would choose some things over other things to lose. Now, I want you to hang on to that idea as we come to the Scripture, and I want to go through some verses with you. To just illustrate that point, when you read the Bible, some verses, it's all God's Word. We love all of it, and it all has some value and profit. But some verses are controlling or more important than other verses. And you read the Scripture by reading those verses you understand well to help you understand those that you don't understand so well. Let me give you an example. And I'm going to ask for some volunteers. Who would read Joshua chapter uh, 3, verse 16? I'm going to ask you to stand up and just read it loudly. Who's going to do that? Just raise your hand. Look it up. Joshua 3:16. Jordan, thank you. You got a Bible with you? Okay. When you find it, stand up and read it. See, if you don't volunteer, you get drafted. So... Joshua 3.16. Well, you go ahead and find the verse, and we're going to ask you to read it in just a second. If you know John 3.16, I want you to say it with me, okay? So we're going to say John 3.16 together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, Joshua 3.16. Thank you. Now, if you could only have two verses, Joshua 3.16 or John 3.16, what would you take? It's a no-brainer. In fact, some have said John 3.16 is the gospel in a nutshell. It tells us God loves the world. God sent Jesus into the world. It tells us that if we believe in Jesus, we have everlasting life. I mean, it's, it's a huge verse. Now, they're all important, but some are more important and significant than others. And John 3.16 drives what we believe. I mean, it's kind of the Bible all wrapped up in one verse. It's huge. Now, it's nice to know about the water and all these names you can't pronounce in Joshua 3.16, but it's not the same significance. Another example. Who will read uh, Joshua 4.8, and then who will look up 1 John 4.8? Okay. Glenn, you're going to read Joshua 4.8. And somebody look up 1 John 4.8. Thank you, Terry. Okay, verse about stones. Uh, now, who's got 1 John 4.8? I want to read this. Because this was preached when I was converted. Uh-oh. Amen. Now, would you rather have that verse about stones in the river or this verse that ends with those three words, God is love? I mean, it's a no-brainer. 
And in fact, to fill in these blanks, God loves the world and gave Jesus for our salvation. The key word is love. God's character is what? It's love. And so no matter what you may be thinking about God, no matter what you read in the Bible, no matter what you see in creation, we believe God is love. In my first church, in Little Inner City Church in Chicago, those rocks are bothering me, um, right above, like where our cross is here, it was a much smaller room than this, but right across there, those Norwegian Baptists that built that building had put three words, God is love. And that drives everything, or it should drive, everything we think about our God. Our God is love. It's a huge verse. Now, one more example. You get the point. Joshua 5.4 and Matthew 5.44. Who would read Joshua 5.4? Hmm. Ran out of readers. Thank you, Robin. Thank you. Now, I just have to comment, because I, I had to leave this out last week, but it's bizarre. After, uh, after they win the battle and they get into this land, you know, I mean, they're going to have all these battles. Joshua circumcises these guys. How well do you think they could fight after that? I mean, think about it. We won't go down that road any further, but uh, it was God who brought the victory. Now, who's going to read Matthew 5.44? Thank you, David. Now, which verse are you going to take? A verse about circumcision or about loving your enemies? It's, again, a no-brainer. So you see what I mean? As we read the Bible, we, first of all, are people of the cross. We have come to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. That controls everything we do, think, say, in our faith. Secondly, because of the cross, Christ has saved us, forgiven us, and put us in a new community called the church, the new creation. And so we're a part of this. That also impacts how we read the Scripture. Now, I want to encourage you today to, to be thinking about these controlling Scriptures as we read the Bible. Now, back to the... Oh, one more Scripture I have to read. I just have to. Turn to Romans chapter 12. When you read Paul's writings, um, as he gets deeper into the book and begins to conclude, like every good preacher, he wants it to be practical, so he tells us just some very practical things, things you can actually understand. You know, the first part, part of Paul's writings are technical, then he wraps up with the practical. And in Romans chapter 12, we're on page 162 in the Pew Bible. Let me read from, uh, oh, let's start with verse 14, Romans 12:14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Now, anybody ever get mad? Don't raise your hand. Just wiggle your toes. Anybody ever get mad going down the freeway and you start cussing somebody out? It is a sin, you know. I mean, he says, bless and don't curse. You should say, oh, thank you, brother. You cut me off. Praise God. <laughs> Isn't that what Romans 12:14 says? I mean, I know you don't like it, but... Now, let's go on down to verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. Give me a break. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. Now, let me stop here. I was reading about some of the conflicts in Eastern Europe a few years ago. I didn't realize that uh, these Eastern European people that look much like us are tribal. 
And so that if you kill somebody in my family, I have to what? Kill somebody in your family, just like in Iraq. And that kind of thinking is in many different cultures today where there's this blood revenge. You did it to me, I got to do it to you. Is that the way of Scripture? Let me finish reading this, this passage. In Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, what are you supposed to do? Flip them off? Feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink, for by doing this you will heap burning coals on their heads. In other words, they don't understand this. You're going to anger them by being kind to them. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, why is there a rock in your shoe? There's a rock in your shoe because, first of all, this reading through Joshua, I haven't forgot about Joshua, makes me pretty uncomfortable. There are things in the Bible which just bother me, and I can't explain. But there's a rock in your shoe for a better reason. If you read the Bible regularly... And I don't care if you've been reading it for five days or five years or 50 years. If you read the Bible regularly, it ought to be like a rock in your shoe. It ought to make you uncomfortable. And put this down. If you always read the Bible and you are never uncomfortable or disturbed, you can be sure you've misread the Bible. If you always read the Bible and it never makes you uncomfortable like this stupid rock in my shoe, you can be sure you've misread the Bible. I'm going to give you a couple examples, and then we're going to wrap up. What I mean by that is this. Um, I'm trying to tie this together here. In the book of Joshua, Joshua comes out. He's a, if he's anything else, he's an obedient person to God, and his obedience is amazing. God keeps saying, Joshua, do the right thing, be strong, be courageous, and obey. Now, I have to ask my question, Steve, am I obedient? Now, let me give you some examples of what I mean by a rock in your shoe, that Scripture ought to be like a rock in your shoe. Now, of course, this never happens. Would you turn to your, your seatmate, your person next to you, turn to him and say, uh, of course, Steve never thinks like this about Joyce. <laughs> Just turn and tell, tell your neighbor that, would you? Steve never thinks like that about Joyce. Okay. I just want you to know. It's an example, folks. It's just an example. But uh, up until just very recently, Joyce used to travel a lot. And uh, she's a very focused person. So she'd go off to some other part of the country or other, some other country, and I wouldn't hear from her. I'm like, well, why didn't she call me? Doesn't she love me? Or she'd call me and say, oh, I just got a minute. I'm getting in the cab, and yeah, everything's good. I'll see you. Bye. And I'm like, I'm home. I'm lonely. You know, talk to me. I'm here. I'd call you if I traveled. You know, and so this begins to build in me month after month, year after year. Pretty soon, what's the matter? I'm just angry at Joyce. She doesn't love me anymore. And so my anger builds. It gets higher and higher. And, uh, you know, I'm going to figure out some ways to get even with her. I'm going to stop talking to her. I'm not going to call her when I'm gone. Uh, forget about birthday cards. I'll just pretend I forgot. That'd be okay, right? I mean, kind of payback, right? But then I'm reading through the Bible, and I read something like, and if you want to turn to one last place, go to page 195. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Say I'm reading along one day, just innocently minding my own business, and I read Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, that would be me. Love your wives. Okay, I love her. (laughs) 
just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You mean i got to climb on a cross for Joyce? Forget that. I've got to die, a sacrifice? That's no fun. That's like a rock in my shoe, right? You know, I read this scripture and it challenges me to a different kind of behavior. Not the behavior I'm born with or I like. Maybe not the behavior I saw in my home. It's a different kind of behavior. It's a new way of thinking. Now, let me give you another example. If you're a child, any, any children here, boys, you ever get mad at your parents, girls? Do you ever get mad at your parents? Your mom and dad? Yeah, so do I. I've been mad at my parents. Now, if you're reading down, say you're reading the Bible someday, and it says, Ephesians 6.1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Say you're reading through that, and you're really upset with your parents. You say, oh, man, I still got to obey. Now, parents aren't always right, but you still have to honor them. Or say you're a parent, and you're reading this, and you're just about to shoot that teenager of yours, or do what Mark Twain said, put him in a barrel and put the lid on it and feed him through a knothole. Um, and you read this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And you read that, and you say, oh, i got to... I've got to change my ways of parenting. I've got to be a better parent. That's like a rock in your shoe, isn't it? It just irritates you. Sometimes we don't want to do these things, but if we follow the Word, we do them. Now, a couple other examples. Well, let me just give you one more. Uh, our denomination is going through conflict. All denominations are. So our region is leaving our American Baptist family. I was decided 20 years ago to be American Baptist. I love the American Baptist family, so I'm a little upset about this. Now, Thursday night, we were going down to the uh, minister's dinner at Atherton, and then we were going to go to a worship service because this annual meeting was down at Alhambra Church, and, you know, I was going to be around my colleagues in ministry, but most of them feel one way, I feel another. And so I realized on Thursday morning, I, I hadn't thought much about this, but when I was praying, all of a sudden, I wasn't praying, I was kind of giving a speech to all these people and telling them how wrong they were, and it was a good speech. I liked it. In fact, the longer I thought about it, the better it got. And then I realized, I'm supposed to be praying. And later that day, Jordan and I met, and he said, well, how can I pray for you? And I said, well, in a couple hours, I'm going to pick up Joyce. We're going down to this meeting. And I said, actually, I'm kind of angry. And so you need to pray for me. And uh, he did. And Joyce and I prayed before we left. Now, why would I do that? Because words like this are like a rock in my shoe. I don't have permission to go down there and blow off steam. Not if I follow Jesus. Because listen to what it says in Ephesians 4.31. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath. (laughs) Put away from you all bitterness and wrath. Wow. And anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. Did he cover them all? And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Well, why should I forgive them? They're wrong. Why should I forgive them? Because God in Christ has forgiven you. Oh, yeah, a rock in my shoe. I don't want to pray. I don't want to ask Jordan to pray. I want to go down there and tell him the truth, (laughs) according to Steve. But that's not what the Scripture tells me. Do you understand what what I mean by this? And so as we read the Bible, we have to look at these uh, controlling verses that influence us to a certain kind of behavior and create us... Uh, to be people like Jesus. Now, I want to end with two other examples. Um, 
And I use these examples because I think they are examples of people who are behaving like Jesus in ways that I can't do. I mean, I would like to think I would do this, but I'm not sure I would. And one of them comes from the Amish story just a few weeks ago, the shooting in the one-room school where the children died. And I don't know about you, but I watched several news stories, and it was just astonishing how these Amish people spoke of their faith in Christ, their forgiveness, their reaching out to the shooter's father and mother and loving them, reaching out to the shooter's uh, wife and family and saying, how can we help you? It was astonishing to see their commitment to... uh, peace and justice and forgiveness. Ann Taylor Fleming, on uh, October the 6th, the Friday night, she was wrapping up the Jim Lear News Hour with an essay. And I want to read what she wrote, because it's impacted me powerfully, and perhaps it'll impact you. Ann Taylor Fleming said, In a world gone mad with revenge killings and sectarian violence, chunks of the globe, self-emulating with hatred... This, speaking of the Amish community, this was something to behold, this insistence on forgiveness. It was so strange, so elemental, so otherworldly. This, the Amish said, showing us the center, the tender face of religion at a time and in a world where we are so often seeing the rageful face, this was Jesus' way. And they had Jesus in them, not for a day or an hour, not just in good times, but even in the very worst. And she concluded, To this the Amish have offered a stunning example of the freedom that comes with forgiveness, a reminder that religion need not turn lethal or combative. I, for one, as this week ends, stand in awe of their almost unfathomable grace in a time of grief. And now this story. Gentlemen, let's listen to the story. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. It all started early Tuesday morning, February 21st, 1984, when Louise Finred's husband, Nathan, got out of bed in Mason, Tennessee, to go let the cat out. Cat, they called him, as he stood on the edge of the porch, his hair bristling on his back. He started hissing. Cat, what do you see out there, cat? Nathan asked. A big man stepped around the corner of the house and pointed a shotgun at Nathan. Lord, honey, Louise heard her husband shout. Open the door, he's got a gun. Before she could open the door, the man with the gun shoved Nathan inside, pushing him and Louise up against the wall. Don't make me kill you, he shouted, thrusting the gun in their face. The couple knew immediately that the intruder was one of the escaped inmates they had heard about on the radio. He was Riley Arzeno of Memphis, who, with four other inmates, had escaped from the Fort Pillow State Prison the previous Saturday. Louise Degra-Finred, a 73-year-old grandmother, stood her ground. Young man, she said, I am a Christian lady, and I don't believe in no violence. Put that gun down and you sit down. I don't allow no violence in here. The man relaxed his grip on the shotgun. He looked at her for a moment. (laughs) Then he laid the gun on the couch. Lady, he said quietly, I am so hungry. 
I haven't had anything to eat for three days. Young man, you just sit down there and I'll fix breakfast. Nathan, she said, go upstairs and get some dry socks. With that, Louise went to work. She fixed him bacon, eggs, white bread toast, milk, and coffee. Then she got out her napkins, her best ones, and set the kitchen table. When we sat down, I took the young man by the hand, she said, Young man, let's give thanks that you came here and that you are safe. I said a prayer, and then I asked him if he would like to say something to the Lord. He didn't say anything, so I said, Just say, Jesus wept. Then we all ate breakfast. Why did you ask him? This is in parentheses. Why did you tell him to say, Jesus wept, I asked her later. Because, she said, I figured he didn't have no church background, so I wanted him to start off kind of simple and slow, something short, you know. Jesus wept. After breakfast, we sat there and I began to pray. I held his hand and kept patting him on the leg. He trembled all over. I said, young man, I love you. God loves you. God loves all of us, every one of us, especially you. Jesus died for you. He loves you so much. You sound just like my grandmother, he said. She's dead. Then Nathan said he saw one tear fall down the young man's cheek. About that time, we heard the police cars coming down the road. They're going to kill me when, we, when they get here, he said. No, young man, they aren't going to hurt you, I told him. You've done wrong, but God loves you. Then me and Nathan took him by the arm, helped him up, and took him out of the kitchen toward the door. You let me do all the talking, I told him. The police got out of their cars, had their guns out, and I shouted to them, You all put your guns away. I don't allow no violence around here. Put them away. This young man wants to go back. Nathan, I said, you bring that man out to the car. He did. They put the handcuffs on him and took him back to prison. That afternoon, two other prisoners who had been separated from Arzeno earlier entered a suburban backyard where the family was barbecuing. The husband went into his house and got a gun. The escapee shot and killed him, and they took his wife hostage. They released her the next day. Was Mrs. Degra Finred frightened? No, she said. Nathan said he was scared, but not me. I knew God was with me. I knew that God had sent that young man to me for a reason. I knew God would lead me in the right direction. Nathan and Louise Degrafinred are lifelong members of the Mount Sinai Primitive Baptist Church. There no, often, there, no doubt they often sing, Are you able to remember when a thief lifts up his eyes that his pardoned soul is worthy of a place in paradise? Lord, we are able. Our spirits are thine. Remold them. Make them like thee divine. Would to God, would to God that all Baptist churches were filled with members like Louise and Nathan de Griffinred. Would to God all churches were filled with members like Nathan and Louise. I'd like you to find your note page 
And on the back side of it are three prayers, and I'd like you to take a moment just in silence perhaps to read those prayers. And I encourage you to keep them with you throughout this week.